From the studios of One Jacks Productions, this is The Revealing, a ministry of One Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, with your hosts, Senior Pastor Frank Silvaggio, Associate Pastor Robert Engel, and Praise Leader Chris Wing. All right, welcome back once again to another episode of The Revealing. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are uh, continuing our conversation on the King James Bible and uh, what we, not we have termed, but what is termed and known as manuscript evidence. Uh, if you have returned, uh, may the Lord bless you. If you have not given up on us and uh, gotten lost in the weeds, so to speak, um, man, thanks for hanging in there with us. Uh, we know the last couple weeks or so have been uh, somewhat, uh, potentially somewhat, uh, maybe if we're honest for some of us, maybe even boring, because uh, I know that kind of dry, you know, some of these these things can, you know, just take us back to, to school or to history class maybe, and you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, so I, we get that. Um, uh, but we hope that we're we're able to convey the information in a way to, or in a way that uh, is somewhat at least practical and um, uh, beneficial to you, uh, and maybe helping you get to the point to where you are uh, settled on what you believe about the Word of God, uh, where you believe the Word of God is and is not, and even able to communicate that to others. And so, uh, with that, uh, today. Um, yeah, a little bit of a breather. Um, we're going to talk about some some, some key people. Um, we're not going to get so heavy into terms and um, dates and locations per se. Uh, t- today will be more of a discussion of uh, three or four um, major players in the game, so to speak, the, the A-listers, if you will, uh, when it comes to manuscript evidence and uh, some some people that have been used um, in this through the the um, through the past several centuries uh, as the Bible has come to be um, been used to um, honestly uh, corrupt the Word of God, um, but that is not how these people are um, portrayed. Uh, what is known about them, uh, if much at all. Uh, by by most Christians um, isn't exactly what you're going to hear today. Uh, that doesn't mean that what we're saying isn't the truth. The things that we share here, uh, I hope you know, I can either be validated by uh, the Word of God, if we're talking Bible, uh, or by history and, and by factual evidence, uh, as is the case with this discussion over the last few weeks here. It's been very um, uh, horse historical, technical, etc. cetera. Uh, but we do want to kind of shift the focus um, into uh, looking into some of these men that are behind the different um, translations and <clears throat> behind the process uh, of how we've gotten uh, the Word of God, as I mentioned earlier. And one of those men is a man that we have mentioned uh, before, probably maybe even every episode in this little mini-series we're doing here, and and that's Origen. Uh, and... and, and um, we, we've talked a little bit, but I want to kind of just bring us together here on this. We've talked about, in different aspects, uh, Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, we've thrown around uh, the name Origen, um, the school in Alexandria, um, Gnosticism, uh, the Hexapla. Uh, we've talked about um, textual criticism, all these different things. 
And we kind of want to just maybe try to tie that together a little bit as we talk about some of these people. And so uh, let, let's talk about uh, origin, um, first of all. Uh, okay, so Chris. Sir. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> How, are How are you? I'm well. How are you? Uh, good. Better than I deserve. Um, so so let's let's maybe just talk a little bit about um, origin. Why why do our listeners need to know who he is? Uh, why do they need to know um, what he believed? And, and then maybe maybe let's talk about some of those things that he did believe. Mm. He was a bad dude. Okay, Is that good enough. Uh, <laughs> kind of. No. Uh, yeah. That's but, not but, gonna fill enough so time why? to really right, talk about. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us today on the. Yeah, yeah. we're done. <laughs> Um, no, kidding aside, um, you know, yeah, as we've mentioned before in, in these podcasts, you know, it's easy to get bogged down. And hopefully the things that we're talking about, the people we're talking about, you know, the terms that we're talking about, you guys can just, it's enough to wet your whistle to go start and dig into this historically. And so sure. these guys are important, the guys like uh, Origen. Um, so he definitely is, again, uh, he follows that uh, Alexandrian line from from the school of Alexandria. Uh, he was a successor of a guy by the name of Clement, who was successor successor of a guy by the name of I'm going to torture this one, Pantanius, I think it is, and who was a successor of Philo. So it, track, it tracks back through the line of of, of teachers, if you will, from that uh, Alexandrian line. And can I, Chris, just for one moment, you since may. you mentioned Philo, yes, sir. Um, just so our our, our listeners kind of have a point of reference, uh, you, you were talking, you kind of going back through the line there. Uh, so just so we all know, Philo. Um, uh, approximately 20 BC to 50 AD, kind of in that time frame. Philo was a Jew, uh, and he is called uh, the, the rabbi or the teacher of the great synagogue, quote unquote, in Alexandria. And why Chris mentioned Philo and why he's important is because uh, Philo establishes a school. In Alexandria, that's the school that we talked about. It's not just any school; it's a theological school. Um, and his purpose in the school was to take Old Testament uh, Judaism and then blend it together with Greek philosophy. Like that was the purpose. And, and so, um, if you've been around our discussions lately, you know that that's a big no-no. Um, trying to take uh, basically what Paul talks about in First Corinthians two, man's wisdom, and First Corinthians one two, man's wisdom and, and God's wisdom, and trying to merge the two. Sure. And so, Chris, when you mention those men, I just want people to know, especially Philo, uh, the the line from which the, the ideologies that that they're kind of passing down the line mm-hmm. as we talk about origin. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the roots of Gnosticism, if you will. Yeah. Um, okay, good. So this guy, Origen, uh, you know, we, we've given a, a little bit of information about him um, on the surface there. He was uh, definitely a heretic, uh, but he was from Alexandria around, uh, uh, could be close on these dates, 185 to 254 AD, who succeeded Clement, and he laid the foundation for modern versions with his commentaries uh, and textual changes. Uh, he did... Uh, author a work called the Hexapla, um, which was definitely used um, by guys like Eusebius, so who was a big Origin fan, and we'll talk about him uh, later on. But some of the things that he believed, uh, and this is where it really comes down to the rubber meeting the road. If we're going to look at this thing from a biblical perspective, we have to know what some of these people believed. If this is really kind of going to give you the foundation of, oh my gosh, if these are the things that they believed and these are the things that they wrote about, then yeah, these guys really they, they stand against what the Bible actually teaches. Um, he denied the infallible inspiration of Scripture. Mm. Okay, he rejected the literal history of the early chapters in Genesis and and of Satan take. Uh, 
taking the Lord Jesus up to that high mountain and offering him the kingdoms of the world, and he accepted infant baptism. Um, he taught baptismal regeneration and salvation by works. Uh, he believed the Holy Spirit was, was possibly a created being of some sort. Um, he believed in a form of purgatory and universalism, denying the literal fire of hell and believing that even Satan would be saved eventually. He believed that Jesus was a created being and not eternal. I mean, that alone is the end of the story because mm. Jesus, that, that means that Jesus wasn't God. Uh, and Things like this are foundational, okay? Mm. He denied the bodily resurrection, claiming that the resurrection body is spherical, non-material, and does not have members. That's Gnostic. Yeah, Gnosticism, like I said. He was, the, he was a product of that. Um. He and he is, if I could say it like this, kind of known as being the father of the of, allegor, of allegorizing the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, he he allegorized the Bible, saying that scriptures have little uh, use to those who would understand them literally. Yeah. Um, now listen, this is very important what what Chris is talking about right now because this has been a big push into the way view people view the Bible today, especially when it comes to. Uh, manuscripts and translations. Yeah. It's not about what God said, it's about what God meant. This is what he really meant. You, you see that all the time. Oh, sure. Um, this is where these these this thinking comes from. It's that, allegor, that allegorizing of the scriptures, and he was known as the father of allegor, the allegor, allegorical method. Mm-hmm. Tripping over my words here. Um, and so, yeah, what that means is that he, he did not take a literal approach to the Word of God. Um, mm-hmm. And so he, that this is a major heretical thinking. Uh, I remember correctly, Chris, today. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he have a, up to five different ways he said you could approach scripture? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I don't. I believe. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> I yeah. certainly believe it. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, not one of them is pay attention to what it actually says. Biblical, <laughs> literal. Yeah. Right. Uh, in this, he was, you know, one of the fathers of that heretical uh, amillennial and method of prophetic interpretation, which was given, you know, further development by guys like Augustine and later adopted by, you know, sorry to call it out, but the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and so this this would just uh, really destroy the apostolic doctrine of the imminency of the return of Christ, uh, which the Bible teaches, and the literal tribulation and millennial kingdom, which the Bible also teaches. It, it also did away with a, a literal fulfillment of God's promises to Israel uh, and set the stage for, uh, you know, the persecution of the Jews by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, you know, you get doctrines like um, we've talked about in the past, um, you know, replacement theology and covenant theology that, that'll come out of this as well. Um, and, and he was basically the first uh, textual critic. Yes, um, and, and I, I want to speak to that, sure. if that's okay, Absolutely. just so everyone is on the same page here. Um, so textual criticism, as Chris said, uh, and he's right, um, Origen is called the, the father of textual criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and textual criticism is essentially the study uh, that, that is employed so someone can, uh, someone can tell us what is in the Bible and what is not in the Bible. Uh, the first one to aggressively go after telling us what is and is not in the Bible uh, is this man that we're talking about, is Origen, who believed all the things that Chris is talking about. Mm-hmm. So, so a man who, who doesn't take Genesis 1 through 3 literally, 
uh, a man who who uh, b- believes uh, some very unbiblical things and doesn't believe some very biblical things is going to tell us what textual uh, excuse me going to tell us what is and is not in the Bible and what it means. And just so we understand uh, how uh, prominent this approach is today, um, I'm going to read a very brief uh, quote to you from um, a, probably a popular source online, uh, blueletterbible.org. You guys ever heard of that? I've heard of that, yeah. Okay. Uh, so blueletterbible.org uh, says this, and I'm quoting, Textual criticism must be practiced on the biblical books because there is no one manuscript or group of manuscripts that perfectly preserve the original reading. Mm. Yet, we do believe that it is possible to discover what the authors originally wrote. There is no need to assume that the text was changed to such a degree that we no longer have the author's original words. The original text can be recovered through the science of textual criticism. So it's like, we, we can get the original words, but we need... Men like origin, or well, how we, do we need know we people. Have them, and that ten yeah. years from now, we're not going to find something that's going to usurp well, what we just had. We don't, and, right? And you just, you just <laughs> put the authority now in man's hands mm-hmm. to figure that out. Yeah, you know, you know, and why, why what you guys are saying is so important for your, you, the folks that are listening is, you know, so obviously, we talked about that idea of helm sets last uh, episode, and this guy is a master of it. Mm. All over his writings, we find stuff. From origin, race, change. Yes. So yeah. that's well, why I said this is important to make sure you understand it because here we go now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like I said, there's that side note on the Sinaiticus, Sinaiticus, whatever it is there. Yeah. Sinaiticus, yeah. That, that it was corrected by, uh, yeah. you know, origin because um, yeah. he wrote this work called the Hexapla, which was uh, mm-hmm. consisted of a six translations of the Old Testament that he yeah. side the, by the side. Parallel Bible, right, basically. Right. Corrected so, it wherever he didn't like it. Sure. Yeah. Yep. And, and while we're talking about origin, um, Chris, did you want to share anything else real quick? Because I want to, after we talk about what he believed, I, I want to read uh, something uh, historically accurate about him uh, that happened to him. Sure. Uh, in light of what we're talking about. Just one last point that, that kind of puts this together as we've been talking about it, but that origin's textual work is, is used to support the Alexandrian text that's preferred by modern textual mm. critics. Mm-hmm. And he is treated by them with, with a great deal of respect. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm going to share one more quote, if I could. This is a little bit more of a lengthy one, but it comes from the New Standard Encyclopedia. You mentioned the school. We mentioned the school in Alexandria. Again, this is the place where Philo began to establish a theological framework where he would take Old Testament Judaism and blend it with Greek philosophy. And this is a secular source that... Uh, gives us the information that it is actually prevalent, not just in the world when it comes to the idea of origin and Alexandria and the school there, but it's also prominent in the church. Uh, and so it says this, quote, uh, it's, this is under the entry, um, Alexandria, Egypt, uh, specifically the school in Alexandria. Alexandrian school, a name given to various groups of persons engaged in artistic and intellectual activities in Alexandria, Egypt, during the Hellenistic and Roman eras. Uh, The the blending of Eastern knowledge and thought was the distinguishing feature of the schools. So so again, uh, this was the thing that set it on the map. This was the distinguishing feature, that it would take Greek philosophy 
again, the wisdom of men and infiltrate it and intertwine it into the Word of God. This was this distinguishing feature, what it was known for. It goes on to say, literature of the Alexandrian school was based on scholarship rather than originality. The writers working in the museum and library cataloged, analyzed, and edited more than they wrote. Uh, But then it goes on to say this, as the Christian era began, the Alexandrian Jew Philo, once again, combining Jewish religious ideas with Greek philosophy, emphasized the mystical quality of man's relationship to God. Philo influenced two late 2nd century Greek fathers of the church, Clement of Alexandria and his pupil, Origen. These two, in turn, headed Alexandria's catechetical, which just means a Christian religious, if you will, a catechetical school, where both Christian and pagan, or Greek, writings were studied, and where the philosophy, later known as Neoplatonism, evolved. Although Neoplatonism was a pagan philosophy and origin, after his death was disowned by the church as a heretic, much of the mysticism of the Alexandrian school of theology was absorbed into Christian thinking. So even in his time, origin was excommunicated. Yet, <laughs> yet today. Right. It continues to be absorbed into Christian thinking. Well, I would even go further than that. Yet today, the Roman Catholic Church idolizes this guy. Mm-hmm. He's considered one mm. of their top dogs. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, uh, when, when you look at these 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 facts, guys, um, th- th- this isn't just a history lesson. Uh, this isn't just hey, let's gang up on origin. This is these this. M- Man, a man like him and others that we're about to talk about were used by Satan to counter and counterfeit the Word of God and the plan of God. And, and we are seeing the effects of that to this day, and I believe we will until uh, just in, until kingdom come. Uh, so so, um, or, so origin, mm-hmm. okay? Let's kind of move on to the next guy we want to yeah, talk about. Yeah, here. yeah. I was going to ask you. Origen, uh, he he passed down his uh, lovely teachings <laughs> to a guy by the name of Pamphilius. Okay. Okay. Uh, so so uh, then Pamphilius passed down his lovely teachings to a guy uh, that's going to be important to our understanding now that we're going to talk about named Eusebius. Right. Okay. So Eusebius is the next... Uh, a, important uh, figure uh, that we need to pay attention to uh, when it comes to talking about this uh, idea of manuscripts. Because what happened with Eusebius is uh, somewhere around uh, 331 AD, Mm -hmm. uh, the emperor of the time, Constantine uh, of the Roman Empire, um, what what, what previously happened before that is uh, Constantine... And the Roman Empire was crumbling. Uh, things were, you know, there was all-out war going on. Uh, the emperor had died. Nobody really knew who was going to step up and take the, take his place. Constantine pretty much figured out that, well, <laughs> we're, we're in trouble here. What are we going to do? And so he he claims to have had, had a vision where he saw a vision of the cross in the sky and that by this cross, uh, you know, they, they were going to win their, the, his army was going to win superiority on the next day, which they did. 
Constantine rises to power, mm-hmm. and what he immediately does is he takes all the the, the paganism of the Roman Empire, and he uh, legalizes Christianity. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the paganism's like, oh, well, we don't like that, and then you know a lot of Christians are like, well, we don't like that, and what you know. So basically, what I'm, what Constantine did in a nutshell is he married the two together, mm-hmm. and you that's why you get a lot of our. Um, uh, you know things like why why we celebrate Christmas on December twenty fifth. Mm. You know why we celebrate the the, the festival of Ishtar. Mm. Uh, you know Easter. Okay, all these things are pagan in its roots that were joined with Christianity. Don't get mad. That's just the facts. Okay, right, right. There's nothing to argue. That's that's just how this thing went down. Um, you know that's how we get the idea that Jesus died on Good Friday. Well, no, he did not die on Good Friday. I mean, come on. Okay, so anyways. So what ends up happening is um, Constantine uh, is starting to realize that there is tensions uh, within his empire between the pagans and the Christians, and he's really trying to give leeway uh, to these these new Christians and give uh, positions and things to that matter to kind of put the Christian, you know, now, mind you, just before this, the the, 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 the the previous Roman emperors are killing Christians. Right. Now all of a sudden Christians are rising to the top here and becoming uh, very prominent within the Roman Empire. And so what 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 uh, uh, he does is he takes this guy by the name of Eusebius, who again, remember, he was a follower of Pamphilus, who again, remember, was a follower of Origen. Yeah. Okay. So you can kind of see where the, this yeah. line of thinking discipleship. Is, yep. Is, <laughs> is, is, has been brought down to Eusebius, and and so what uh, uh, Constantine does. Eusebius has a major factuation with Constantine. Uh, he just loves the guy, and so Constantine says, "Okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Let's put together an ecumenical Bible." And so basically, what that word ecumenical means is accepted by all. Yeah. And Eusebius was the perfect guy to do it because yeah. he'll go into the Bible and he'll pick and choose <laughs> what what to change, what to you know, kind of make it so that everyone would accept it. Pleasing to everyone. So yeah. now the reason why what, what I just said is so important is because uh, many, if not most, uh, textual critics uh, for and against uh, what we're talking about right now um, – Will uh, will readily agree that they believe without any doubt that Vaticanus and Sinaiticus came directly from Eusebius's work. Mm. So there you go. You want to know who had a hand on the manuscripts that we're using for our English translations today mm-hmm. that came out of Egypt, mm. Alexandria. Mm. There's a reason why we're saying this because it did. Yeah. Okay, I mean obviously uh, Eusebius uh, he spent time in Egypt. Uh, again, he was under Pamphilus, who was under Origen. They were all in the in the school of Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, all of this stuff is is obviously and should be relevant. Um, yeah, of course. You know, so this Eusebius guy. Uh, the other thing that we want to make note of Eusebius that I think is not quite manuscript talk, but just to make note of it, uh, you, you know, Eusebius is also considered the, the father of church history. And so a lot of our quote-unquote church history <laughs> is accepted coming from him. Mm. Well, the problem is he has a very Roman Catholic bias. Yeah. So if you read church history based off of his books, you're going to get a Roman 
you know, uh, what was going on during the time of the, of the uh, uh, merging uh, that took place with Constantine, you're going to get a lot of that thinking. And so, of course, that's why you're going to go back to Peter as our first pope. Yeah. Now, he didn't say that, but he did consider Peter the first, uh, you know, whatever. And, and so, again, it's, it's well, okay, uh, but, you, you know, you need to pay attention to the source right now. Are you sure you want to put your, your trust in the source, mm. knowing what the source believed? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's what, you know, now let's fast forward that to today just for a second. Yeah. I think that's important. Like, do you really actually know what these people that are writing these big Christian books actually believe? Like, do you know what they believe? Yeah, you like, because you know that whatever they believe is going to be intermingled in their book. <laughs> I mean, you might want to know what these guys actually, pe- these people actually believe uh, before you start to, uh, you know, buy into whatever it is they're writing. Definitely. Same thing with Eusebius. Probably the biggest thing that we're talking about right now and now bringing it back. Listen. This guy had his hand on Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Mm-hmm. That's not you don't think that's important information that we should be paying attention to? Because uh, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so, again, just to kind of come up for some air here uh, to, to interject a little bit, uh, we are um, trying to get a handle on um, not just who these. Um, major players are, but um, what they believed and why they believed it. And and I think that you're seeing, and I hope you are, why that's important today. Uh, Because, again, it's uh, ever oh so prominent in, in Christian thinking. And I use that term because Christian thinking is not biblical thinking. A Christian mindset is not a biblical mindset. Uh, those are two very uh, distinguishable, or very two very distinct, I should say, um, approaches to the Word of God um, and ideas about God and the Word of God. And, and so what we're getting today in this conversation is the um, influence of men like Origen and, and uh, Eusebius um, and, and how that is infiltrating, whether you realize it or not, um, what you believe, uh, why you believe it, uh, because those are the men, and, and these are the movements, and these are the, the uh, ideas and the beliefs that comprise uh, many of the Bibles, most Bibles today that are out there on Christian shel- Christian uh, bookstore shelves. And so, um, this is just such such a such a monumental thing um, that that Satan has done that we just we decided we've got to clear off some space and. Talk about this. You know, and there's many, uh, there's many things that we could talk about uh, that were her- heretical that Eusebius uh, believed, but I'm just going to give you one of them, okay. just just to, just so we can keep moving, okay? Because okay? I think this one's enough. Th- this should this should seal the deal. Seal the deal, <laughs> yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Right? Eusebius accepted the Arian side of the rejection of the deity of Christ, and he claimed that Christ was a created being. Mm. Which is what Origen believed, and he was a big follower of, of Origen, so you see how they connect. And so there you go. Which is similar to what Nazism teaches. So, 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 mm. now, so now what you have is you have a guy who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, yeah. who believes that Jesus was a created being, who has got his hand on the ecumenical Bible. Mm. 
which, which by the way, I think is also, uh, you know, fun little nugget, uh, is, you know, when the, uh, when Constantine joined the, uh, church with, uh, with, with the pagans mm-hmm. and commissioned Eusebius to do this ecumenical Bible, you know, fun little nugget, the, those that didn't follow after this new world order that didn't believe what was going on was right and went underground, completely rejected everything you see. Oh, absolutely. Did. Yeah. And were martyred and, and martyred and killed for it. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you had so you had Christians, okay, mm. that didn't agree with what was going on. Right. Went underground, completely rejecting what UCBS today did. Mm-hmm. Yet today, we got Christians reading the very stuff that these guys rejected, yeah. and, and that's so important because that has been the the narrative or the case like all through the age. Uh, it's um, look what was going on back there with Constantine. You know, it, it was it was Rome that was in control, and uh, it was every emperor after emperor after emperor that was. Um, persecuting the Christians, and then all of a sudden Constantine comes in with a supposed uh, salvation experience, um, though not biblical, and uh, th- this man no more uh, saved than the man on the moon. But <clears throat> he uh, begins to, you know, as, as Frank you said a moment ago, to to bring Christianity back into the light and to uh, give. Um, um, stimulus checks, if I can use the modern, <laughs> the, the modern vernacular, nice. uh, to to just you know just help people out and all that stuff, and, and so Christians are are reinstated with their places of worship, and their Bibles are no longer taken from them and burned and whatnot, and all that stuff, and, and the persecution stops, and this is modern day Christianity at the time, yep. and so so what modern day Christianity was was heresy these things we're talking about. And there was a group that went underground that rejected these teachings, and they were persecuted for it. But as you said today, again, it's the same story. We have modern-day Christianity, people running around teaching this and preaching that and believing this and writing books on that, and and it's all just this ecumenical melting pot, uh, just make anything and everything to, to bring it all together and to make it pleasing to all, so to speak. And those, the little peons like, like, like Chris, you, me, and Frank, yourself, us, just us common people who um, actually believe what the Word of God says about the Word of God— we Pretty crazy. Are, are yeah. We have to go underground, so just if you will, you know what I'm saying we're not we're not being persecuted right now, uh, but we we're aren't. the minority. Sorry, we aren't. Um, no, no. Oh, I guarantee you, there's somebody listening to this right well, now going no. UKJV only. Probably pulp. so. Probably so. Yeah, uh, don't consider that. I would take that over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and, and in light of all this, Robert, right, right. In light of all this, you know, the the Bible that we believe is the absolute authority says in First Corinthians one ten. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak all all speak the same thing. There be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So am I supposed to be perfectly in the same mind and the same judgment and just ecumenically get together and Mm -hmm. Yahoo Eusebius when he says that Jesus Christ is Mm -hmm. not deity and he's a created being? Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not going to gather on that. What Bible did he he uh, contribute to? Because I want that one. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, you got to think about some of the things that they believed. It's why we're trying to, you know, illustrate these things because of how they've permeated into modern thinking and mm-hmm. such the like. As I said about Origen, who believed uh, 
in infant baptism, if you just take that one thing alone, that one little, quote-unquote, little thing, I say sarcastically, alone, millions of people died and were martyred for that one doctrinal dis, uh, not believing and following that. These Anabaptists that we, we said, these are the Christians that went underground who were persecuted heavily under the emperors and then, of course, under papal Rome, heavily persecuted, just from that one doctrinal uh, distinction alone— because that's what they were doing. They were called Anabaptists. They were rebaptizing people biblically because they had the actual uh, line, the tr- true proper line, the, the Byzantine line that they were following, which is the Word of God. And, and it, ta- it teaches that, that that's not how it works. There's no, no doctrine of, of infant baptism. And so because of things like that that they stood against, they were heavily, heavily persecuted. Mm-hmm. And eventually they dropped the, the Anna and just became what we would know as Baptists. And of course, that's even changed even to this day. But it's important to see that through history because, you know, Listen, God is the author of history. It's his story. And as Pastor Robert's been leading us on Thursday nights through church history, we're seeing how those seven letters to the seven churches that were written uh, uh, by Jesus in the book of Revelation correlate to those periods of time in history, which we're outlining here to yeah. the, in these podcasts. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this fits right into it. And and it's it's absolutely perfectly, perfectly absolutely, which is crazy. It's perfect. You know, the Church of Pergamos, you know, and, you know, yeah. big time, you know, with all these persecutions and whatnot. So, you know, just taking... You don't gloss over these things that we're saying when it comes to what these guys actually believed, because things like infant baptism were were a huge thing that people stood against and died because they didn't believe in those things. And again, that's what's infiltrated into today's modern thinking, and it's just glossed over, you know, but people just don't even realize what they're actually following when they read all these different translations of the Bible and, and where they actually came from. Guys like Eusebius, guys like Origen, and these are the things they believed. How could you, as a Christian, now this is this is the question I'm putting out there to podcast land. How can you, as a Christian, now knowing if you didn't before that this is where these things come from, actually want to read Bibles that were translated from the works that came from that line of thinking? Mm. Would you say that you believe in these things like infant baptism and that the rejection of the deity of Christ Some and, do. and all that kind of thing, and actually Some sit there do. and say that's biblical and that's Christian? Some people do. Well, and mm. you want to know why they do? Because they have these Bibles that teaches that. It's something sure. to think about. That's why they believe it. Mm. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, origin, uh, Eusebius. And I think we need to talk about real quick before we go to those last few guys, just oh. real quick, we need to talk about the Gnostic writings. Okay, go for it. Because we're right there. Um, you know, obviously, um, in uh, our, our uh, uh, in, in the world today, people have a lot of questions about these Gnostic writings. Uh, what they'll claim is, well, these books were supposed to be in the Bible. Oh, the apocryphal and, books, right? right? Yeah. Well, I don't want to go apocryphal. That's That's Old Testament. We could talk about that another time. Right now, I want to talk about, I want to keep us in the realm of the New Testament. So, um, these apocryphal books. Uh, so, uh, again, folks, if you're listening, just please hear me. Okay. Do we know where these books were found? Nag Hammadi, which was in Egypt. So, right there, we should stop. And we go, why are all these books found in Egypt? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Mm. Yeah, because God's trying to make sure. That we grab onto something here, mm. okay? Uh, listen, listen. These Gnostic writings, none of them, none of them, by even uh, top scholars of today, none of them were considered written before 350 AD. Mm. So that right there, uh, no, 
If they weren't even written before 350 AD, how the heck are you going to put them in the Bible? I mean, just by Jesus, if we're going to let the Bible be the authority, again, you need to do that, okay? <laughs> but if you let the Bible be the authority, write in Revelation, it says, do not add to my words or take from them. Okay. So if there were, once Revelation was done, which was 95 AD, okay, no other books after that should ever enter into canon. Hmm. So right there, if we just stop right there, none of these books should ever have been added into canon. Sure. And so there, there is why we reject them. They were written 300 years after the fact. Right. There's just no none of these people lived during that lifetime. There's just no way to to be able to verify any of that as any kind of factual history mm-hmm. at all. There there was no uh, direct witnesses. It's just it's it's nonsense to think mm. that these books are uh, uh, and or should be included into uh, the Bible yeah. again. Even despite all that, I would say, where was it found? Mm-hmm. End right. of story. Yeah. Let's keep moving on. Yeah, you would think so. Yeah, should. Be. All right, now we can go to those guys, uh, which are uh, Westcott and Hort. Dun, 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 dun. We have arrived. Um, maybe I, I don't know um, it, where you are if you're a student of history or church history or not or whatever. But like I would, th- I think these two. Um, are maybe the most commonly heard uh, in some way or another. Um, I say that, but then again, I can see where it sure. may not be. The, I don't know. I guess it just depends on it who does, you're talking to. Have... Yeah, if you kind of not in the know, but like if you've actually are a student of of these things we're talking about and whatnot. Um, but uh, definitely the most modern uh, of, of those that we're we're speaking of today, uh, yet no less influential. And, and so. Um, uh, Frank, like I was asking Chris, so so let's take um, Westcott and Hort. Uh, who were they? Um, what did they believe? And, and how is that affecting what we have today? Yeah. So let's let's fill the hole real quick. All right. So we we we've talked about origin that led us to Eusebius, right? And then um, obviously Eusebius had his hand, which I think most uh, folks are going to believe, going to say, on the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. All right, so now get this. So here we are now, from roughly three thirty A.D. to fourteen hundred A.D. Mm. Okay, understand? There's just really only two manuscript Bibles that are being propagated. You have you have either what's coming out of Alexandria, or you have what's coming out of Antioch. Yeah, that's it. That's all you got. Okay, the ones that were coming out of Antioch, people, the Roman Catholic Church are burning and killing and the the, the you know plundering these people, uh, and the ones that are coming out of uh, uh, Alexandria are becoming the Roman Catholic Latin text. Mm-hmm. This is why many uh, uh, many have termed that period of time the Dark Ages. Yeah. And the reason why they permit that is because the, the 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 actual true Bible was not allowed in the common man's hand. It went underground. Correct. Okay. So so okay. Time passes on. We get to roughly around fourteen hundred A.D., starting with Wyclef, moving up through uh, sixteen eleven. Uh, you have these seven uh, 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 movements uh, within the English language to perfect the Word of God. You get to 1611, you have the AV 1611. Okay. Okay, now here we are. From 1611, so here we go. Now now the Word of God is finally getting back into 
the common man's hands. Mm. Hence, hence the reason why it led to the Re- Reformation even to begin with, although I would argue the Reformation didn't do what it, it, it we weren't, we didn't need to have a Reformation of the Roman Catholic Church. We needed to just completely blow it up. <laughs> uh, and I mean, blow up what they were teaching because yeah, what they were yeah. teaching was completely wrong. Needed a transformation. Yeah, it was a transformation, right. Yeah. But, but, but it did lead to, um, you know, the 1611. And here's an important fact to know from 1611 to 1901, there was no other English translation. Mm. That was it. That's what everybody, in an, if they had an English translation, that's what they were using. So for almost, what, 300 years, that was it. And we could argue right now that some of the greatest missionary movements to ever take place uh, uh, happened during that time. Uh, by the way, this would have been the period of time that would have taken place in the period of Philadelphia in our, mm-hmm. in our Revelation study, which they had the key of David. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so here we go. Okay, so this is so again up to this point we have two lines of of manuscripts mm. and really only a couple different translations, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then comes and enters into these guys called Westcott and Hort. Okay, okay, uh, uh, you have these guys uh, Westcott, uh, uh, Brook, Brook Foss, Westcott. Uh, he lived from 1825 to 1901, and then you had Fenton John Anthony Hort, who lived from 1828 to 1892. And these two men uh, are, uh, without a doubt, the father of modern-day translations. If you're going to pick up an NIV, you're going to pick up an ESV, you're going to pick up an NASB, or any of those different translations outside of the AV 1611, you probably should know these are the guys that paved the way for you to have those in your hand. Okay. That sounds great. These guys sound good. I want to know all about these guys. Right. Well, do you? Are you sure you want to know about them? Because uh, once you start to know about them, you're going to start to scratch your head. Um, so these are the guys that really started to insert the idea of oldest is best. Okay. Right. Realized that we had the Vaticanus, found that, that you know, in 1872, they found the, uh, the Sinaiticus in the in the in the trash can, okay. Tischendorf did, and so these are the manuscripts they think that we should be using, okay. So we've been we've been trying through this whole time to say, okay, but do understand these manuscripts came from Eusebius, Origen, <laughs> Egypt, okay. They're saying these are the manuscripts we should be using. Well, here's the thing you need to know about Westcott and Hort. Number one, I would highly argue these men weren't even saved. Sure. I, I'm going to highly argue they weren't even saved. And they, without a doubt, were 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 definitely very Roman Catholic. And, and this is based on what they believed. Oh, yeah. This is why we can say oh, this. Oh, yeah. You yeah. start to just read what they said about stuff, right. and there's like— oh And much gosh. of it, what they said themselves, not what other people are writing oh, about no, them, no doubt. what they've said themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what they do is they spend—you know, they, they, they go through this time, they, they go back to the original Greek— Ooh. I wonder where we got that idea from, from mm-hmm. these guys. They went back to the original Greek, and they published, uh, I believe it is in 1881, if my memory serves me correct, yep. they published this New Testament. Nestle, it ends up being the Nestle Greek New Testament. Okay. It ultimately leads to uh, uh, 
where we are today with with our literally hundreds of Bible translations mm. in the English language. Which, by the way, since that first edition, we are now just entering into our thirtieth edition. Mm. Let me repeat that: our thirtieth edition. And do note that uh, in 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 the world of copyrights and and books and things like that, to have an edition, you have to have changed at least ten percent of the book. Mm-hmm. So now you have thirty of them. So whatever they came up with. In the beginning, so far removed, so far removed from where they were. Yeah. Again, mm. wh- something doesn't seem right about that. Mm. But that's the idea of the modern texture critic. As we get more information, we can update yeah. what's going on here, so we can get closer to the original. That makes sense if you don't think about it. Okay. So I just want to read some quotes from these guys. Okay. Okay. Because I think that'll do it. And these are direct quotes from these guys. Okay. Okay. Westcott. Do you not understand the meaning of theological development? It is briefly this, that in an early time, some doctrine is proposed in a simple or obscure form, or even by darkly hinted at, which in succeeding ages, as the wants of men's minds grow, grows with them. In fact, that Christianity is always progressive in its principles and doctrines. And I'm telling you right now, that is exactly the mindset of what's coming out of most of our cemetery, I mean seminaries today. That's the mindset. This is what we're teaching people, and that's what they're coming out with. It's very progressive. So, the, yeah. so what they're doing is now they're going, well, God, you know, these aren't the actual words of God. It was his thoughts. And we're progressively learning and getting more understanding and knowledge so that we can understand what God was really trying to say. So God's waiting until now to really tell us what he was really trying to say? Sure. Like, okay, this is Westcott and Hort, man, okay? Uh, how about Hort? He says this. One of the things I think which shows the falsity of the evangelical notion of this subject, speaking on baptism, mm-hmm. is that it is so trim and precise. See, he didn't like literal. Yeah. He, he didn't like that it, that's what it said. So what he said was, there's no deep spiritual truth of the reason or thus logically harmonious and systematic. The pure Romish view seems to me nearer and more likely to lead to, talking about the Roman Catholic Church, the, the truth that the event, than the evangelical. The fanaticism of the bibliolaters, he's talking about the ones who believe in the Bible, yes. okay, okay, among whom reading so many chapters seem exactly to correspond to the Romish superstition, superstition of telling so many dozen beads on a rosary. Still, we dare not forsake the sacraments, or God will forsake us. Mm. I'm inclined to think that no such state as Eden, uh, I mean the popular notion, because he didn't believe in Eden. Did you hear what I just said? Yes. Okay. He wrote it right here. Yeah. The, no such state as Eden, and he wrote, I mean the popular notion, right. ever existed, and that Adam's fall in no degree deferred from the fall of each of his descendants. I got about 17 verses I just just jumped to my mind that completely contradict what this guy just said. Mm-hmm. But the only way they contradict what this guy just said is if the Bible's actually the authority. Right. If it's not, and we're just talking about his ideas, well, you know, hey, we can, we can kind of spin it to where this guy's got some thought. No. <laughs> <laughs> Westcott, I never read an account of a miracle, but I seem instinctively to feel its improbability and discover some want of evidence in the account of it. I never read an account of a miracle. Well, wait a minute, dude. Didn't you read the Bible? Yeah. Oh, oh, that's right, because you changed it all. Right. I got you. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's Westcott. 
Further, I agree with them in condemning many leading specific doctrines of the popular theology, as to say the least, containing much superstition and immorality of a very pernicious kind. The positive doctrines, even of the evangelicals, seem to be seem to me perverted rather than untrue. There are, I fear, still more serious differences between us on the subject of authority. I agree with you there, brother. You're right. Mm. There is some serious differences. Mm-hmm. And especially, he says, the authority of the Bible. <laughs> and he's right. Yeah. And by the way, you should start reading some of the, what he says about the authority of the Bible. He doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible. Hort, but the book which was mo- has most engaged me, I love this one. You ready? You ready, folks? The, the book that he read that has most engaged him. I'm ready for it. Not the Bible was Darwin. Mm. Darwin's Theory of Evolution. That's the book that Mr. Hort most engaged him in his lifetime. And therefore influenced him, of course. Sure. So whatever may be the thought of it, it is a book that one is proud to be contemporary with. I must work out and examine the argument in more detail, but as present, my feeling is strong. The theory is unanswerable. In other words, it's correct. Mm. Okay, great. And he's a guy that got a hold of our New Testament and wrote all, got, that's where we got our New Testament from, folks. Right. That's where we got our English language from. This is the guy that had his hand on it. These are the guys. Hort, I entirely agree, correcting one word, with what you there say on the atonement, having for many years believed that the absolute union of the Christian, or rather of man, with Christ himself, is a spiritual truth of which the popular doctrine of substitution is an immoral and material counterfeit. Mm. Jesus didn't die for our sins on the cross. It's a counterfeit. Certainly nothing can be more unscriptural than the modern limiting of Christ's bearing our sins and suffering to his death. But indeed, that is only one aspect of almost uh, of an almost universal hearsay. So the doctrine of atonement that the Bible teaches to Mr. Hort is a hearsay. Mm-hmm. Westcott says, I've been trying to recall my impressions of La Salette. Okay, he's a Roman Catholic uh a priest, I wish I could see to what forgotten truth Mariality bears witness, and how we can practically set forth teachings of the miracles. As far as I could judge, the idea of La Salette was that of God revealing himself now, and not in one form, but in many. Wow. Okay, there you go. Yeah. 1865, Hort says this, I have persuaded for many years that Mary worship and Jesus worship has very much in common in their cause and their results. Okay, good Catholic he is. Uh, 1867, I wish we were more agreed on the doctrinal part, but you know I am at staunch, I don't even know what that word means, um, sac- sac- sacerdotalist, the belief that proprietary sacrifice for sin requires the intervention of a priest. And there is not much profit in arguing about first principles. In other words, what he's saying is, absolutely 100%, the belief is that Sacrifices for sin require the intervention of a priest. He believes that. Finally, Westcott said this right before he died. No one now, I suppose, holds that the first three chapters of Genesis are a literal history. Mm-hmm. Sounds like something Origen believed. I could never understand how any one reading them with open eyes could think they did. Yet they disclosed to us a gospel, so it's probably elsewhere. It's a different gospel, huh? Mm. Okay. So if you're listening right now, please hear me because here's the facts. 
And I think we have done a pretty good job of laying down the, the, the factual history of how we got to where we are today with our translations. So now do you see why we have said all along the argument isn't the translations? Right. It's not. The argument is the manuscripts it came from. That's the argument. Definitely. If the translation came from Vaticanus or Sinaiticus, which most of them do, okay, uh, then whether you like it or not, some of you who are listening may love this. Some of you may listening may not like this. But do know you are reading Roman Catholic doctrine. Yeah. To its core. It's true. It's Roman Catholic doctrine. Mm-hmm. It's the facts. That you, you, and then you wonder why we're teaching Calvinism today. You wonder why it's having such a strong push in church today. Why didn't it have a strong push 100 years ago? Because nobody had all these new translations, any, and that, that wasn't the push. That's a Roman Catholic doctrine. You know, why are we pe- teaching that we can lose eternal security today? See, that wasn't a strong thing 100 years ago. But it is now because why? It's Roman Catholic doctrine. That's why we're teaching amillennialism in most of our churches today. See, 100 years ago, that wasn't a major push. Why? Now it is. Why? Because people are reading Roman Catholic doctrine in these perverted Bibles, yeah. and, and they don't know it. And this is why you're seeing so many denominations returning to the Roman Catholic Church in, in, in which, their confessions, in their practice, in their beliefs. Which, by the way, I think the Bible says something about that. Yes. Because who's the one that's going to rise to power and the Antichrist is going to take control of? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. It's, it's, it, it doesn't take a genius. I know the last couple, two, three episodes, we've talked about some technical things. But it, when it's all said and done, it really doesn't take a genius to go, oh, man, wait a minute. And again, I got to go back to, where did it come out of? Mm. Did it come out of Antioch or did it come out of Egypt? Which one? Mm-hmm. Alexandria. Which one do you... If you want to follow Alexandrian text, and if you feel like that is where God preserved, which he said he was going to preserve his word, if that's where he preserved it, then have at it. All I know is the Bible that I read, the one that I trust in, says, out of Egypt I call my son. Yeah. Mm. He, called every, he calls everybody out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why he's calling everybody out of Egypt. Yeah. Because there's something now, Egypt in the Bible, throughout all the Bible, is a picture of the world. Mm-hmm. Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, gosh, now you understand what's going on in Revelation chapter number two when it's talking about where Satan's seat is. Mm-hmm. And, and why God has to take, Jesus has to, 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 to make the point that he is the uh, authority. Why does he got? Why does he? He shouldn't even have to do that. Well, because during that time, his authority and his word was going to get questioned, right. and it was. And although that happened fourteen hundred years ago, nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. It, it, matter of fact, I might argue uh, because of where we've gone. To, you know, we, we no longer have just a couple to have to decide between. We literally have hundreds. Yeah. So I mean, we've pictured or we painted a picture, if you will, 
um, though we've gotten technical about a lot of things of, of history leading up to these guys uh, in, in our modern history, if you will, of, of Westcott and Hort. And you can see that now as we continue these podcasts, I'm sure we're going to start talking about this thing of Bible translations. It was these two guys that paved the way for all the new modern uh, Bible versions that we have in English today. Their work that, that, that ended in the became the revised version of 1881 is the is the work that paved the way for all these new Bible versions and translations that that subsequently came starting around the the year 1900 and are flooding the markets today and, and, and again as Pastor Frank has said and we've talked about these all come from the Alexandrian line of manuscripts and so that's why they have so much uh, in them that are different but it's these two guys in our modern history that paved the way for all of the, the explosion of these modern translations that we had coming from uh, the 1900s and that's why you see all these uh, ideologies uh, that Pastor Frank was talking about re-emerging and exploding in history and um, so now you know that's where it all started for us and it exploded very quickly within like you said the last hundred years very very quickly uh, so, so I think the the subtle and the not so subtle uh, influences of, of the men that we're talking about here and these 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 uh, ideas that have passed through the centuries is that where we've arrived today in the 21st century in the church is that there is no final authority. Uh, that is what these teachings lead to. Uh, there may have been at one point. Uh, but that has since been lost through textual criticism and and um, dual authority and, and all the uh, original manuscripts. Uh, the, the, that, that's what was infallible, you know, all that stuff. Um, number two, uh, it, it, it's the, it man's wisdom or the world's wisdom uh, being mingled with God's wisdom, um, and that we need outside influence and outside perspective when it comes to the Word of God. Uh, which, of course, is not the case. Uh, and, and Frank, as you mentioned a minute ago, you know, why do we, why are we surprised when we see, you know, when two different people can look at the Bible and come to two very different conclusions? It's, but it says what it says, but there's just so many of these influences that have been passed down to us, and they've seeped into our minds, seeped into our hearts, um, oftentimes unawares. And... Um, it's a very scary, a very damning, and very real thing, but a very avoidable thing. And so we hope that this has been maybe a resource to help you avoid some of that. I'm excited to continue these discussions as we move forward, but I think we're going to put a put a bow on that for now. So thank you for hanging with us. We encourage you to continue listening with us, but also go back and check these things out and and search for yourselves. Um, don't, don't, uh, you don't have to take our word for it. Uh, but we are grateful that you, you, you do give us your ear. Um, and until next week, uh, take care and God bless. Thank you for listening to The Revealing, a podcast ministry of One Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Senior Pastor Frank Silvaggio, Associate Pastor Robert Engel. For more information about One Baptist Jacks, please go to our website, onebaptistjacks.com. Dot world or email us info at one baptist jacks dot world